news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I'd just like to announce that my February beta reader matchup has opened. If you're looking for beta readers for your work or people who might potentially become writing group partners down the line, go to my website to sign up. That's biancamaray.com and look for the beta readers page. Then we'd like to give a shout out to the sponsors of the prizes at our deep dive workshop series. Thank you to Robin at Readly Book Coaching. You can find out more about her services at readly.net. And to Lydia Hilger, who's a book coach specializing in literary, upmarket, and book club women's fiction. You can find out more about Lydia at lydiahilger.com. And thanks to the Witches of Pictures, who specialize in editing, writing, and consulting services for pictures and proposals. You can find them at witchesofpictures.com. And you can find all of these details on the shitaboutwriting.com's website in case you didn't get the details now. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Books with Hooks. We've got four queries to get to today. And as per usual, we're not going to waste any time. Carly, will you kick us off with that first query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, 
it takes courage to escape an eroding marriage laced with torture and scarred by affair. Jane Anna Cooper scrapes up the willpower to do it, not knowing her safe house is a remote cabin flooded with horror. I'm seeking representation for my debut commercial fiction novel, The Bone Cart. It is a high-concept paranormal thriller complete at 72,130 words. Set between rural Ohio and Somerset, Pennsylvania, in 2001, the fast-paced, plot-driven story unfolds between alternating points of view with dual timelines over the course of one day and night. The Bone Cart will resonate with fans of the unsettling, otherworldly occurrences in John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies in the Sinister Domestic Atmosphere and the character unreliability of Gillian Flynn's God Girl. Jane Anna Cooper has two choices— Leave her cheating, abusive husband, Paul, an ex-sheriff's deputy, or live with the ever-worsening torture he inflicts. After a brutal fight, Janie's dad, Sheriff Robin Dahan, helps stage her disappearance by renting a cabin in Pennsylvania, giving her a chance to plan her next move. His only instructions don't get noticed. But she does. Her ominous neighbor, Chris, has been waiting for her, and so has Thana, the malevolent spirit of a girl left to fend for herself with her father's rag and bone cart after his execution in 1911. Janie becomes the terrified hostage of Chris, Thana, and her own sanity. At home, Dahan entrusts his chief deputy, Eric Yates, to investigate her disappearance, thereby allowing him the opportunity he's been waiting for, full access to exact revenge on everybody, including Janie. I am the daughter of a retired small-town sheriff. I'm also a philosopher with a BA from the University of Texas. My writing career started with obituary and eulogy composition. I was recently published in Cafe Lit Magazine, a publication of Bridge House, and the Volney Road Review. I reside in Ravenna, Ohio. The Bone Card is my debut novel. Included are the first five pages of my manuscript per your guidance. The full version is available upon request. Thank you for your consideration. Amanda Doak. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Wow. There's some really interesting elements in there. And we've got the the tension of the ticking clock. So what was your take on that? All right. So there's a lot of layers here. So I'm going to start with, I'm just going to start at the top today, I think. So the word count for this one is 334. Okay. So we start with a paragraph that is a bit kind of generalizing, like the eroding marriage, laced with torture, scarred by affair. I would probably just start with, I'm seeking representation. I would probably just start with that paragraph. I don't think we probably need that first paragraph. Secondly, we kind of have two definitions of what this book is. We have debut commercial fiction novel, and then we have high concept paranormal thriller. We actually only need one of these two things. And obviously it's a high concept paranormal thriller. So that's the part that we would keep here. And then the rounding of the words, you have 72,130. I would just say 72,000 words. I think that would probably be fine. I'm really curious about this whole set in 2001. I'm so curious about why. Like, especially when something is near history, to me, it always feels like we're avoiding technology potentially. So I don't know. It, it just kind of always gives me not a red flag. It gives me a bit of a yellow flag, I would say. I'm always a little bit curious about why why it's 2000 can i ask um, them so is that something they should ever put in the query letter because it seems like it would be out of place and yet it's always something that piques your interest so i'm wondering if it's ever something that they can address that's why i say it's a yellow flag not a red flag because if it's a red flag i'd be like definitely figure out how to tell me this information I'm I'm really torn. I, I agree. I think it would be something we would stumble on. And some people might say, why would we even bother having this in there? So it's not necessarily that we do have to give a reason, but eventually I need to know the reason. And so it's always going to come up for me as a big, as a big why. 
Oh, and then the comps. So Mothman Prophecies, I believe that's a television show or a movie. I think multimedia comps are great. Gillian Flynn. This book is now 12 years old and it's not a high concept paranormal thriller. Therefore, you need to find one. It just, that one really stood out to me as just, it's a great book and there potentially are elements of it that you could comp to, but there are so many more opportunities for you to find another high concept paranormal thriller book. There's lots out there. And if you are writing in this category, I know you're reading in this category and I know that you could find some. Our character's name, she's called Jane Anna to start with. And then all of a sudden we're calling her Janie. So to be honest, I don't think we need the introduction of her with her full name. I think we just call her Janie all the way through because I was like, who's Janie? I don't know who Janie is. We just got introduced to Jane Ann. And I really liked the line about how her dad is helping her escape. That's very interesting to me. And what he knows as a sheriff and being able to help and how it's like, he's part of the law, but now he's like, he's helping his daughter disappear. And anyway, there's just a lot of kind of gray area and kind of like power struggle. And I just, I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on with that section. Now, the next paragraph is about this Chris and Thana, right? So she has an ominous neighbor. And then she says she becomes the terrified hostage. Like I'm thinking like physically, right? Like he literally abducts her when she tries to escape. But I do think we really need to spell this out. There's obviously this kind of like ghost type of character, the spirit. That's fine. But in terms of like who physically abducts her, I think that just really needs to be clear that he literally takes her hostage. And we do have a lot of characters in this query letter, more than I usually like to see. There's our female character, there's the husband, there's the dad, there's the neighbor, there's the ghost, and now there's the dad's co-worker. That's six characters. That's a lot. That's a lot for me to keep straight. So I don't understand the Eric Yates part. What's his motivation? Why does he want revenge? And where is the husband in all of this, right? Like, has he disappeared? So I have a lot of questions. This is very interesting, though. But I think when there's so much going on, we just really need to be extra, extra clear about literally like beat by beat, like what is happening in this book. Okay, what was in those opening pages? All right, so in our opening pages, we have our character Janie. She is actively bulimic in the bathroom, and she feels like she's being watched. She appears to be sick, sweating, crying, very sad. The month we're told is September. She feels like her marriage is falling apart and her safety is at risk. We learn that her mother had cancer, likely died. Her husband isn't at work, but he isn't at home. She thinks he's getting into trouble somewhere. She climbs back into bed. She's very scared. She doesn't know where his gun is. And so we like have very high intensity of feelings. Uh, she calls 911. And the dispatch operator is actually her friend who picks up. So we're getting the very small town vibe. She says she thinks her husband is going to kill her, is what she says to her friend. And then all of a sudden we get a POV switch mid-chapter to the friend who's on the line. And she is kind of in the office saying, you know, when's the last time we did a wellness check on the Cooper house? And in her friend's point of view, Michelle, we learned that Jamie's father is the boss at the police station. And we kind of figure out through Michelle, you know, nobody knows why Jamie married this man and like why her dad, who's the police chief, even let her. And then when the wellness check comes back clear, that's when it ends. So just in terms of that POV switch in the middle of the chapter, is that denoted by like a hashtag scene break? How how has the author done that? Yeah, so we have kind of like a three asterisks kind of situation for the denotation. Okay, so it's not omniscient POV. It's like third person close and then it switches. Yes? Exactly. Close third for both of them. I'm just looking back at hers. Oh, no, she's in first. She's in first. And then we're switching to close third for okay. Michelle. Okay, so that's interesting, switching POVs in the middle of a yeah. chapter. How did that work for you? Let us know what you thought of the pages. 
All right. So it's a pretty intense opening, which you probably got the gist of. There is a lot of intensity, obviously, from her making herself sick, kind of to start with, just really intense emotions. She says, sadness at what my life and marriage became, sadness that one or the other was going to end soon. And Paul had absolutely no fucking idea, nor would he care if he did. So we get the sense that she might potentially die by suicide or her husband might kill her. Like those are very, these are very intense feelings. Like she feels like she is a a person on the edge here, right? So we understand that the stakes are very high for her. So we talked about why 2001, right? So we're, there's kind of a bit about TRL and Carson Daly and like that kind of mention. That's the point. I think that's supposed to tell us it's, it's 2001. I would really prefer a timestamp and we just cut out the Carson Daly stuff. I just didn't really think that was really necessary unless we were really trying to build up like a lighthearted moment to balance out obviously the intensity of what's happening in the pages. We also get a mention of a dream I don't know if it's like there was a dream before the book even started or whether she's in a dream now. Wasn't really clear on that, but really I'm feeling for this character very much. There's a lot that's really going on here. The friend seems to know a lot about the situation. She knows that the husband is probably going to hurt her. That's why she kind of sends out for the wellness check. So all in all, I think everybody understands how dire the situation is. I liked the POV switch. I know it's very strange to go from like first to like a close third but what was delivered in the close third was actually very useful so it seemed like a sophisticated way of communicating that information I don't know how it's going to kind of go through the rest of the novel and whether it was just kind of a one-off it's a if it's a one-off I'm not really that into it but if it's going to kind of continue I think it's potentially interesting and it's a pretty intense set of pages Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Yes, that was going to be my question. If the author consistently applies that kind of structure throughout the book, then you're setting the reader up very early on what to expect in terms of structure. So, and the fact that it worked well is great. Okay, right, Cece, will you kick us off with your first query letter? Dear Cece, I have learned so much from the shit no one tells you about writing podcast over the past few years. Thank you for sharing your expertise and enthusiasm for story with all of us. I can't tell you how much it's appreciated. I'm querying you because of your interest in women's fiction, particularly with flawed and messy protagonists. Also because you love dogs. And wine. So, enthusiasm, expertise, dogs, wine, and smashing the patriarchy. I'm looking for a representation on my second novel, Chasing Clooney, a 90,000-word women's fiction female buddy adventure dramedy best described as what would happen if the characters and friendship-slash-empowerment arc of Thelma and Louise were tossed into a mission-style plot similar to The Blues Brothers. It might sit nicely on the domestic comedy shelf next to Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Tatum Lancaster could have been the next Aaron Sorkin. She's that talented. When an unplanned pregnancy derails her professional screenwriting dreams, she lives and writes vicariously through her best friend and college roommate, DJ, for almost two decades, fantasizing how she'll get back to the industry once her teenage kids leave the nest. She's frantic when DJ suddenly announces she's leaving Hollywood in two weeks as of her 40th birthday. Without DJ's lifeline into the industry, Tatum knows she'll be stuck and reduced to sneaking those little snack-sized bottles of wine into her lunchbox in order to deal with her misogynistic boss, her soul-sucking job, and her husband, who doesn't seem to mind that her soul is being sucked. Making a pact, Tatum gets DJ to promise she'll stick around Hollywood if George Clooney himself 
not a staffer, not an intern, reads her latest screenplay. He'll buy it. Tatum's convinced. After all, he bought one of DJ's scripts five years earlier, and it never got made. In Tatum's mind, he owes her. In exchange, DJ insists Tatum quit her horrible job so they can work together as a writing team. Thus, the two chase down the A-lister starting at the Oscars where, as a seat filler, Tatum freezes in front of him and 40 million viewers. In a drunken Hail Mary, they catch a red-eye to the Berlin Film Festival where he's presenting. There, Tatum meets an accomplished and helpful producer while trying not to get fired. It doesn't work. And they narrowly miss Clooney again. In a last-ditch attempt, they catch a flight to Lake Como, where they plan to pitch George on his own patio, and where DJ is faced with presenting either her own screenplay or the one she discovered Tatum secretly wrote. Chasing Clooney is a rollicking road adventure about female friendship and how having a winged woman who believes in you more than you believe in yourself just might be the key to unlocking your own confidence. I live in Los Angeles with two cute but sloppy teenage sons, a husband who speaks in movie lines, and my sidekick mini golden doodle, Indy, named after Indiana Jones. My first novel, Mom's Night Out, was self-published after a calamitous family event derailed my traditional publishing goals. The Calamity is a memoir-worthy story of how a spinal cord injury can both bring a family together and tear it apart, and is next on my TBW list. I have an undergraduate degree in biochemistry, which makes me good at Jeopardy and helping with homework, and an MA in journalism. When not writing, I can be found surfing the cove with my coven of girlfriends, tending our backyard vineyard, or volunteering at our local dog shelter and trying not to adopt them all. Attached, you'll find my first five pages. Please let me know if I could send you the rest of the manuscript. I'll look forward to your reply. Cheers, Lara. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, can you give us an indication of the word count and then your take on that? So this is clocking in at 625 words. That's longer than ideal, so I would try to trim. Even if I were to discount the words in the first paragraph, which are lovely, but they're only there because we're reading this for the podcast, it's still longer than the typical preferred length for a query. In terms of comps, I love the comp to Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Even if Maria Semple has a tendency to write characters who always forget about their dogs. I don't like that bit, but I do love the writing and the story. It's fantastic. So this promises me a book that's quirky and pacey while at the same time being introspective and insightful. And that's great. However, the other two comps, I'm not sure about them. I think I tried to find a more recent book or a more recent TV show just so I can understand how to position your title. In terms of the plot paragraphs, I love that there's a friendship at the heart of the story. I'm drawn to stories about female friendships. This is, however, reading closer to a synopsis. There are many detailed story beats that we don't need to know at the query stage. For example, them going to the Oscars and freezing in front of 40 million viewers, and then going to Berlin and narrowly missing George. These are cool details, but I don't think they belong in the query letter. The job of the query letter is to make me want to read the book. So I'd save this for the actual book. And what about the script that Tatum secretly wrote? My spidey senses tell me that that reference is important. On a related note, I'm not seeing a plot-driven major dramatic question. So right now the climax is, which script is DJ going to pitch to George? Which I don't really think is the major dramatic question. So I'm wondering if the lead was buried in 
that secret script. So I don't know. I don't know enough about your story, but I'm just getting the sense that there's more to be fleshed out here. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? The protagonist, Tatum, is waiting for George Clooney, which is nerve-wracking because he's George Clooney. Here's what makes it worse. She really has to pee, but she can't leave or else she might miss the opportunity to, again, meet George Clooney. So it's quite the pickle. And she's thinking to herself, don't be nervous. He's just a regular human. In fact, he seems smaller than she is when she finally sees him, which makes her wonder if she could like pin him down and keep him there until he agreed to buy and produce her script. So finally she meets him and he tells her that he loved her screenplay. That's exciting. And then she wakes up from her daydream because it's all just a daydream. In reality, she's at work. Her boss is barking at her, reminding her of an upcoming meeting. But the daydream isn't totally a fantasy. We learned that her best friend, her ride or die, did meet George Clooney. And then the phone rings and it's her best friend and they have great banter. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so that is a bit of a risk starting with a, a daydream. Is it the same as starting with a dream, which people generally don't like? So this is going to be interesting to hear your take on it. I want to begin by saying that this is really funny. So thank you for pitching a humorous book and delivering a humorous book. Like I laughed. I had a really good time reading this. It was so much fun. Good job. I will get into whether the daydream is working or not in a second, but I first I want to say I like that she's daydreaming about a movie star, but not in a romantic sense. For decades, the media has portrayed women fantasizing about movie stars in a romantic way, right? But that's not what's happening here. And that's refreshing. It's her ambition. She wants the power. She wants the money. She wants the career. And I love that she's ambitious. It's so great. My big picture note is that while the I love the voiciness and I love the humor and I genuinely enjoy these pages, I didn't get to the end of them and think to myself, oh my God, I have to read more, which means that I wasn't super curious at the end. This is something that I really struggle with as an agent. It honestly makes me feel like a big jerk because clearly I'm reading something by a very talented author who put a lot of work into these pages and I'm saying, well, I'm not curious, so work on it. At the same time, I know that it's really important to make the reader feel curious. Reading is something that demands all of our attention. When I read, I can't do anything else. The book needs to completely suck me in and make me forget about emails, about Netflix, about my marriage, about my, my friends, about everything. Which means that you should infuse tension in these pages. Which brings us to Bianca's original question, which was, I don't think the daydream is working. I do think you should save it because I want that scene in the book. It's really great and funny and voicey and humorous. It's just not the ideal place to start. It's the only critical note I have. And I hope that you can find a way to infuse that tension or else just to ignore my note if it's just not resonating with you because it is just one person's opinion. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, let's go to your next query letter. Dear Carly, I'm a big fan of the shit no one tells you about writing and have walked many a mile absorbing your incisive advice. I'm querying you about my YA speculative fiction novel, Redacted, 86,000 words, because I think you're a crazy talented editor and because you've indicated that you do represent select YA. With its focus on one girl's quest for self-realization in a future society founded on governmental control over reproductive rights, Redacted is matched by Ali Condi meets The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. 
Ida Ransom, a 16-year-old science genius, is growing a horse fetus in an artificial womb as a final project at the selective school she cheated her way into. But when an encounter with Kane, a mysterious labor grader, gets her expelled, she doesn't receive the usual punishment, an official downgrade to service grade and routine sterilization. Instead, she's whisked off to a secret research facility where she's commanded to recreate her artificial womb using human embryos. Isolated in a top-notch lab, Ida begins to question her faith in the directorate's vision. Prydain, a society built on the ashes of England and a world utterly destroyed by war, has one goal, to breed a population that will never go to war again. But Ida is getting a little queasy about the nuts and bolts of epigenics, and when she discovers that people are being imprisoned to serve as human lab rats, she makes a bid for freedom. Teaming up with Kane, the labor grader who got her expelled from school, she sets off across the country, determined to find a way to the other side, where rumor has it a ragtag population of survivors still clings on. The directorate pursues the runaways relentlessly, but even if she can elude them, can Ida ever outrun the brainwashing she grew up with and act on the attraction fee? she feels for Kane. After all, academic graders and labor graders do not touch. I'm a published author of women's fiction, recentering the field after a 10-year hiatus. Back in the early 2000s, my first novel sold for six figures in a preemptive bid by Orion. I took a break from full-time writing to raise my children, but kept my hand in writing articles for Soundwatch magazine, teaching writing at Ritopia, and publishing the occasional short story in literary magazines such as Funicular. Redacted will be my YA debut. Born in Eswatini in Southern Africa, I now live in Connecticut with my husband and two exacting dogs. Occasionally, we welcome home our college-age children and their dirty laundry. Thank you for taking the time to read this, and I would be thrilled to hear back from you with a request for more pages. Yours sincerely, Redacted. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, how many words in that query, and what did you think of it? All right, so we track in around 460 words. So it's definitely on the dense side, especially because there's only one, two, three, four-ish paragraphs. Right, so just starting at the top, I am called an editor in this. I am an agent. I think that I, I do also edit, of course, just as a point of clarification, I am an agent. Okay, so this this middle body paragraph is really long. There, it's just dense, right? There's a lot of information we're trying to convey. We have to build a whole world. We have to explain the plot. We have to explain the stakes and all why it matters. So I understand why it's kind of as dense as it is. But we do have words like, with its focus on one girl's quest for self-realization. Like that's the stuff I'm like, I don't think we need that, right? So I think really, if we took a really close line edit here. I think there's a bunch of stuff we can strike out. I do think that there is a potential to trim this down. I do think we're going to start to see a lot more novels on the market, whether it's YA or adult, about reproductive rights. This isn't to say that there's anything wrong with you writing that. I just think that if we're going to be putting things into the world in this category and it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of material, you have to be, putting the best out there, right? So really, really important. If you're going to be in a busy category, you need to be the best in a busy category. So it's really something to, to think about and, and pay attention to. We want you to be the best. With the world building, there's still a lot that we don't know. And you kind of tuck the, the mention of Pradane and the society right smack dab in the middle of the body paragraph. So I would potentially think about moving that up a little bit higher so we can understand. And also the brainwashing, like... 
I'm really interested in that evolution of like what she believes versus what she kind of understands as she's evolving. So I think I would lean into that a little bit more, but also try to just trim, trim, trim. How much of this is romance? I'm kind of curious about that. The bit about like the academic graders and labor graders do not touch. I'm like, that just seems kind of young to me, kind of middle grade wording. So I would figure out a way to, I think, to say that in a way that feels more market appropriate for a YA audience. But other than that, I, I think it's really interesting. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Will you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? Okay. So our main character is in the lab, her science lab at school, working to euthanize rats. And her lab partner is her best friend, Shannon. She asks to be excused out of the room, but nobody really knows why. We're not sure if it's because she's supposed to be squeamish or not. We kind of think she is. But then she's in the bathroom kind of pulling herself together. We find out some information, like it's an all-girls school. We also find out that one time our girl disappeared and she was never heard from again. When she's in the bathroom, she kind of sees something moving behind her and it's a boy in the bathroom, which is strange because it's an all-girls school. He's a little bit older than her, potentially late teens. She's like debating whether she run, does she scream? But she's really curious because it's very strange that he's here. So, and then right at that moment, there's a power outage in the building. He's a bit scared and she's like, this is all normal. We get the sense that they're not of the same social class. Her friend comes looking for her, kind of wondering like, why isn't she kind of back in the lab already? But we find out that the boy is looking for his sister and potentially has a message for her. And that's why he's here. Awesome, Carly. It certainly sounds like there is curiosity there to keep reading. So what was your take on that? Oh, right. So I think my main note here is really about uh, around the world building. I know that it's so hard to simultaneously build a world while introducing characters, introducing conflict, introducing the stakes. I, it is one of the hardest things to do of any type of writing, I think, just because you kind of have to do so much work. It's the same with historical fiction, right? There's just, again, when you're in a very setting rich story, there's a lot of work that has to be done to kind of build this all simultaneously. So I didn't really find there was enough references to it being another world. I think I really would have liked that a lot more. To me, the only references were, there's a mention of a technology device called a Scridget. And then there's kind of the power outages. But power outages could happen anywhere, even in our contemporary society. So I just really didn't feel like we had enough of an understanding there about why this world was so important. Because when we're going to set a book somewhere else, there is a reason, right? There's a reason that we have to kind of be in another world. It's part of the architecture of how you're trying to build this story. Everything has to have a meaning and purpose. So why have you built this world? And if you're not utilizing it from page one, why does this world have to exist? So those are some of my questions. I just, it wasn't world building rich enough, I think, for me to really get excited about it in a way that I would want to be to move forward. It's incredibly sinister, the line about the the girl who got kind of abducted and taken away and was never heard from again. That was a really sinister bit. I really enjoyed that. I think that was incredibly strong. My main question really is around this boy. Why was he in the bathroom? Was he especially waiting for her or was he waiting for his sister? Was he waiting for anybody? Like he just put himself at so much risk to be there that it really wasn't answered. It seemed a bit like Again, this is the opportunity for these two characters to meet really early. It's coincidental, potentially, that she's the one that walks into that room. I don't know. I, I think I would have been more interested if she had walked in and that boy was like meeting another another child and she, like she overheard a conversation. Like, I just think there are so many other ways that it could be less meet cute. I think that would, I think, potentially be a little bit more interesting. But as a concept, it is incredibly interesting. And that's why I, I really, really want to like this one. But I think there's still some some work we need to do. 
Thank you, Carly. Yeah, world building is incredibly tough because like you say, you need the stakes, you need the conflict, you need tension, you need characterization, and then you're giving yourself a whole other job of building this world. So it's tough. Okay, Cece, will you read us the last query letter? And you have to do it seamlessly. So that's fun too. <laughs> We'd expect so much. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I'm looking forward to Tease Not Ya newsletter and any tidbits that will take my craft to the next level. Thank you for reading those successful query letters on the podcast. I'm seeking representation for my commercial fiction romantic drama, complete at 82,000 words, redacted, possesses waves of suspense, sprinkles of humor, and a splash of fantasy. The plot is best described as Nicholas Sparks' safe haven, meets Ontario's version of the Loch Ness Monster. Fans of Virgin River may enjoy the pacing. A divorcee enters a budding relationship to the exasperation of her former husband. Terrified of losing her forever, her ex inadvertently triggers chain reactions that are devastating. At the age of 55, Lacey's adult existence mirrors a bad soap opera. Divorced five years ago, she's determined to end her personal pity party, move out of her best friend's lakefront property, and focus on her career and senior jog. After a wonderful evening with a blind date, Kent, her memories are marred when the sensation of being watched slithers through her veins. She questions whether it's her ex, Wesley. The community sees Wesley as a successful and respected business owner. Lacey knows him as a man who forgot to mature when it came to their marriage. Lacey invites Kent to her temporary home for dinner, and their friendship continues to develop and spark. Their laughter can be heard from neighboring properties. Consumed by jealousy, Wesley dismisses the golden rule regarding a local legend on the bay of their Algonquin district lake. No motorized watercraft. Ignoring the folklore, Wesley ventures into the perilous territory on a jet ski to attract his ex-wife's attention. A decision they will all anguish. Canadian, I live in Ontario with my husband and our canine kid. I have worked with multiple critique partners and editors. Another commercial drama is in the final stages of editing. No animals were harmed while drafting this plot. I'd be thrilled to send you my complete manuscript upon request. Thank you for your time and consideration. Heath Greenus. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so how many words in that query letter and what was your take on that? This is around 345 words, good length. I appreciate that. The query letter starts with an elevator pitch. You all heard me read it, which can be a great way of grabbing an agent's attention. And this one started off strong. To make it even better, I'd lean into specifics in the last clause. So instead of saying triggers chain reactions that are devastating, get to the actual plot point of the climax or mention exactly what is at stake her life, her freedom, her safety. In terms of the plot paragraph, my first note is that there are a lot of sentences on the story setup and characterization, and not a lot on the actual plot. We get so many details on the protagonist. She's 55, she's divorced, she has a senior dog, she lives on her BFF's lakefront property. I don't think we need all of them, especially the lakefront property bit. We also get a lot of details that set the scene such as their laughter can be heard from neighboring properties. Another example, do we need to know how the community sees her ex? 
they don't seem to factor into the plot points. Essentially, what I'm saying is that you can dial down the setup and characterization details that will give you room to develop the plot. Because right now, all I know about the plot is that there's going to be like some type of tragedy when the ex takes out the jet ski. It's making her, who I assume is our protagonist, seem more reactive than proactive. Which brings me to my second note. I think we need the plot points to show her protagonism. Speaking of which, I, I had a question about the book as a whole. Is it dual POV, multi-POV, single POV? If it's not single, I would specify that in the query letter just to clarify these issues of protagonism because I, I read this query letter and I'm assuming it's just her POV. The X seems to have a lot of protagonism, so maybe he's also a POV character. Now I know because I've read the pages, but at the time of reading this query letter, I was just not knowing. So for my final note, there's a line that reads, when the sensation of being watched slithers through her veins. And that gave off thriller vibes, which I don't think is the intent. If it were a thriller, great, but I don't think it is. So something to consider. You might want to tweak the sentence and so that the vibes are matching the genre. All in all, I wanted more. You'll notice that my note is give me more story. I want to know more about your story. And I want to say that the author paragraph, the bit about no animals were harmed while drafting this book, I, that was so clever. I am going to steal that. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay. What was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? We are in Wes's head. So this kind of answers at least a little bit of my question. There's more than one point of view. Inside the car, Wes is inside the car, clearly watching a building where she is. The building has many windows, so a lot of people could potentially see him. He thinks to himself he'd have a better chance of going undetected if he did this at night, but that would require waiting until February or March, and he has no patience. He says to himself, damn Lacey, why do you have to make everything so difficult for me? Through interiority, we learn that he's going to install a tracker on her, his ex-wife's car, that's who the she is, to keep tabs on her every movement. He gets into the vehicle, we get details about her personality, such as the fact that she keeps an immaculate car and the scent of the car, and he begins to install the tracker, thinking to himself, I can't leave a trace, she can't know I was here. He thinks about how he misses having friends and having a life because he used to have friends and a life when he was married to her. Wow. Okay. So that's pretty compelling. He sounds delightful. Okay. Cece, what was your take on them? Oh gosh. I wish the author were here because I really want to ask them a question. Is this West guy supposed to read as, how am I going to put this? Creepy and pathetic? I think so because come on, he is controlling a woman. He's putting a tracker in her car. Like this is a creepy and pathetic man. He's not even thinking about the fact that this is unethical or he's not even guilty, not even a little bit. Like his only concern is not getting caught. This is not a good guy. So I'm pretty sure this is intentional because the query letter does portray him as a bad guy. So great job. You, you managed to make me feel what you want me to feel towards this character. However, I do wonder if starting with his point of view is the right choice. When writing a dual or multi-POV novel, as a general rule, remember that the reader's brain will connect the most with the first point of view we get. And that's just a rule. And so Wes, he isn't the hero, right? The query letter tells me that Lacey is the hero. So why not start with Lacey? 
If it's because we need to know about the tracker, then perhaps you could pull a Leon Moriarty in Apples Never Fall and start with a nobody character. In Leon's novel, that's just a waitress who's observing the siblings talking. So maybe somebody could be watching him put the tracker on the car. Somebody who for some reason can't call the police because of their own situation. So that might be a good way to avoid starting with creepy and pathetic Wes. Good job writing a villain. I do want to say that. And Wes, sorry, not sorry. You are creepy and pathetic. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing the fun you can have with the antagonists in the story. Right. So that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Now we go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is an award-winning novelist and screenwriter living in New York City. He's the author of Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, now a feature film from Amazon Studios, We Sold Our Souls, and the New York Times bestsellers, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires and The Final Girl Support Group, both currently being adapted for television. He also authored the Bram Stoker award-winning nonfiction book, Paperbacks from Hell, a history of the horror a paperback boom of the 70s and 80s, and his latest nonfiction book is These Fists Break Bricks, How Kung Fu Movies Swept America and Changed the World. It's my pleasure to welcome Grady Hendrix. Grady, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so wonderful to get to chat to you. I've got a ton of questions for you about craft and about genre, etc. For our listeners, before we begin, what we're talking about today is how to sell a haunted house. There it is. And I just want to give you a bit of the blurb so you understand the story we're talking about. So Louise finds out that her parents have died and she really doesn't want to go back to Charleston to pack up their home that's filled with her father's academic books and her mother's puppets and her weird kind of art. But she has to go and she's especially dreading seeing her brother Mark, who is they have a problematic relationship, but she needs his help to get the house ready for them to put it on the market because there's kind of this boom happening in Charleston uh, and they can make quite a bit of money selling the house. But some houses do not want to be sold. Dun, dun, dun. And that's how... Uh, Cue this scary that, music. Yeah, absolutely. Cue that always. Right. So, Grady, I want to talk about this genre. So, your work has been called has been classified horror, science fiction, supernatural fiction, gothic drama, dark fantasy. Now, can you speak a bit about the genre and what it offers readers and what it allows the writer to explore beyond just, you know, scaring the crap out of readers and making them not want to go to sleep at night? Sure. Well, I think there's sort of two things with horror. One is it fits my skill set. I'm bad at creating secondary worlds or really that kind of extensive world building. I prefer to write about the world that I see around me. And that's often, that's horror's sweet spot. Horror and romance and, and crime too. Those genres really often like are set in the contemporary real life world with just a small twist. And the other part of it is horror is the only genre that really sits with death, which I think is the sort of only thing we all have in common and that we're all going to die. And that it kind of, that's what gives our life meaning that we have this limited amount of time and horror really doesn't just sit with death, but also sometimes that's where it starts. That's it's so interesting you say that because on the podcast, we look at different genres all the time and, you know, people are like, what is literary fiction? And we talk about how it's about the human experience. It's not necessarily plot driven. It looks at what does it mean to be human? And so often when we talk about death, that's related to grief. 
And grief is very different. It's such a passive emotion. It's difficult to write about well in fiction because it causes a kind of paralysis. Things stop when you're grieving. Mm -hmm. Whereas the way death is explored in horror is much more active, right? Right. Well, it's more active. And also horror tends to be more about mourning, which is uh, an active form of, of grief. You don't just sit with it. You look for ways to express it. One of the interesting things in this book, there's a, a funeral for Mark and Louise's mom, who's a puppeteer, and a lot of people keep bringing it up. And I think one of the reasons they do is because we all want that funeral that feels like a true reflection of who that person was. And I've sat through lots of funerals that were fine, but I don't feel like the person really got the send off that matched them. And I think we've all sat through those. And so I think people really respond to seeing one that's so uh, on brand. Yeah, and that funeral scene, so just what Brady's talking about is the mum's a puppeteer, and so all these people from the puppet world come to the funeral, and they have their puppets, and it's puppets all talking to each other, and there's sequins, and there's feathers, and there's glitter, and it it is a wonderful celebration. It weirdly reminded me of, I don't know if you follow that account on Twitter called Am I the Arsehole? Um, oh, sure, I know the account, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people write in and they're like, well, so-and-so is pissed off with me, but I don't think I'm the asshole. I think they're the asshole. And somebody actually wrote in about being invited to a puppeteer's wedding. Yes, I remember Where two that puppeteers, one. yes, were getting married, but they wanted all of their guests to bring puppets and just have the puppets speaking to each other. And it's amazing how it works so well at a funeral, but for a wedding, you're like, no, dude, no, don't do that for the wedding. I think that was one of those cases when clearly the asshole were the people having the wedding. Because also there was like this forced jollity to it. People were being forced to be happy. I think for, for the funeral in the book, these are puppeteers sort of expressing themselves with their puppets, which is their preferred method, which is a part of them. And so, yeah, having to, that, that wedding sounded like a nightmare in every sense of the word. <laughs> Yeah, I was what like, I know who the people. Do you know if they had the wedding? I don't even know because I don't generally follow up on what happens. Yeah. But I was going, oh my god, I would not go to that wedding. I would, I would definitely have an excuse for that day. But something else you've said there in terms of horror and mourning is there are so many things when people die that we are not allowed to express and that we think about. Like for me, I have these macabre thoughts when someone gets buried that I actually, a month after they buried, I actually think about, I wonder what the decomposition process sure. now looks like, right? Sure. And then I've, I've never been able to speak to anybody about that. And then I think, God, does that mean I'm like really weird and strange? Do other people have these thoughts? But I don't feel like we ever politely allowed to discuss them. Whereas right. books like yours opens up these kinds of conversations to the darker side of death and how we process that. Yeah. Well, it also, you know, it's funny. I think the distance in between us and death and, and the ways we're allowed to express it are very limited these days. You think about things that people used to do and they had rituals and traditions that made sense. One of the things in the book and one of the things I've dealt with, and I think everyone will deal with at some point, is cleaning out the house of someone who's passed away. And it's really hard because there's the stuff that's easy. Family heirlooms. Well, you know, photos. Yeah, you're going to keep those. There's stuff that's easy on the other end, you know, like, like junk mail and things like that. And like this case of toilet paper or this, you know, thing. But other stuff is 
really hard. I mean, a collection they had, their clothes, things like that. You don't quite, it feels like you're throwing some of them away. And then there's also the issue of people fighting over stuff when someone passes away. And then you look at the Vikings, they loaded it all up on a ship and burnt it. Everything you owned got burnt. And I'm like, in a way that solves these issues in a really great, smart, clever way. You bury them with the person, you burn them. The Egyptians did that. And so I think there are things that we did that made sense that now we view as these outdated customs, but they actually dealt with things maybe a little smarter than we do. Yeah, and Aunt Honey is going to disagree with you there because she was horrified at the thought of Mark the Sun throwing the ashes in the ocean. And she was like, for God's sake, people swim there. You don't put ashes in the ocean. So, yeah, setting people alight in the ocean something else. I was just at a funeral where they were scattering the ashes and it was a windy day. And it was a really tricky thing to figure out. They wound up pouring them very close to the ground, but then there was just a little pile of ashes on the ground. So yeah, the the logistics of these things are fascinating. Yeah, I know someone who did not think through that in terms of wind and wanted the grand gesture and threw them off into the wind and, of course, got a mouthful of them. So these are things that, yeah, we, we also don't think about. Okay, so while we were talking about genre, what is it about the South? that lends itself to gothic novels. Southern gothic is this genre. What is it about the South that just perfectly encapsulates this? I don't know, but I, my guess would be, because it's all so hard, right? I'm from the South and I've got lots of family down here still. So it, it's hard to be a fish and describe water. But if I had a guess, I would throw out there that storytelling is really valued down here. Whether you're telling stories to for of self-aggrandizement or to make the achievements of your ancestors seem greater than they were. In Charleston, where I'm from, there is the Hunley, which was a submarine that was developed in the Civil War for the Confederacy, and it was lost. And it wasn't really a submarine so much as it was a ship that sunk very slowly, and it was lost, and it never really did much. But growing up, man, I thought, growing up here, you thought the Hunley was the key moment of 19th century history and the Civil War. And then you leave the state. No one's ever heard of this. It didn't do it. All it did was sink and kill the 11 people or nine people who were on board. But we love to tell these stories to make our past look better, our ancestors look better and more important. And we love to tell them to sort of like entertain people. And we tell family stories nonstop. Sometimes it's annoying. And so I think that that may be a trait that makes Southerners very good at at storytelling in general. And I think when you tell stories, especially family stories, the right way, they default to Gothic. My wife's family are Canadian, and I tell all these family stories. And they're always like, your family's so crazy. They do all these wild things. And I think, but your family does too. You guys just don't tell the stories. So I think the default setting for family stories is Gothic. And I think because Southerners love telling stories, Southern Gothic just goes hand in hand. Yeah, love that answer. Alrighty, so what are the conventions and tropes of the genre that authors who are working in the sphere need to be aware of? Can you give them some indications of the things that they should be paying attention to? Well, I mean, it's different for every every bit of the field, right? A haunted house book is really a haunted house book is all about family. A vampire book is all about predation. A possession book is going to be all about 
some kind of like personality being replaced with another one, someone changing. So every subgenre in horror has its own challenge and its own rules. But there are two things that I think anyone writing horror has to be really aware of. And one is there's two moments you really need to learn to navigate. One is there's that gap between the reader knowing something supernatural or wrong is happening and the character figuring it out. And you don't want the reader to get too ahead of the characters because then they're just going to get bored. At the same time, if they're not far enough ahead of the characters, there's a joy in that of knowing a little bit more than the people in the book that you're reading, knowing that there's a bomb under the table that might go off, that gives suspense. Knowing that, oh boy, don't go in that room, gives you those moments that are so satisfying. So that's always a really tricky moment to navigate. How long before the characters figure out and accept something supernatural is going on? And then the second one that you have to navigate, I think with horror, is you have to navigate a confrontation of some sort. And it's really hard because sometimes confrontations can feel very, I would say, empty. There's a bit of an arms race with horror, right? In this book, we pulled out someone's eye. So in this book, we're going to pull out both eyes. And in this book, we've seen eye pulling. So now we're going to pull off their head. And I think the trick to those confrontations is you have to make them really emotionally grounded and connected. And that really serves a purpose where you get out of that arms race because something relatively minor that's super upsetting for the characters can be super upsetting for the reader. How to Sell a Haunted House has a very low body count, but because I am, I'm lucky enough in good cases to get the reader invested in the emotions of the characters, the things feel bigger. And I think that's the really trick. I mean, all books have to, if it's a good book, have some kind of moment of confrontation and conflict. But I think with horror, there's that physical aspect of it that you really, is tricky to navigate. Yeah, that's so true. Because I remember walking in once when my husband was playing some game and in the game, his character had to rip off another character's arm and then beat the guy to death with it. Oh, sounds funny. And I was just, yeah, I was just, I was, this is disgusting. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. Why would you want to play this? And he was just, oh, it's just a game. And so people become anesthetized to certain things by watching television, etc. But like you say, when you make it personal, you break through that desensitivity right. to make it hit home, right? Yeah. Look, spectacle has its place. I mean, I love Yoshihiro Nishimura's Tokyo Gore Police, which is body horror spectacle galore. Spectacle's great, but I think you can over-rely on it. And one of the things that books do that movies cannot, and if you're not playing to the strength of books, I'm not sure why you're writing them. If your book is just a movie in written prose form, why? But the thing that books do is they are relentlessly interior. You are always, almost always inside someone else's head, someone else's point of view, even a third person omniscient point of view. You're inside the narrator's point of view, third person limited. You're inside a character's perception to a large extent, and you're limited by what they have knowledge of. And if you break that POV, you really got to do it specifically and purposefully. And so I feel like that interiority is what books have to offer. And that is why I try to lean away from spectacle so that when you deploy it, it works. 
Yeah, interiority is so, so incredibly important. And I feel like a lot of the time that's what separates professional writers from emerging writers is really nailing that interiority. I want to talk about stasis in your first chapter. So these days, as writers, we keep getting told that people's attention span is limited. People like watching short reels and you've really got to grab them quickly. And I've had creative writing instructors before I published who were like, you have to immediately get to the action. There's no time for stasis. The reader needs to be grabbed from page one, throw them into the middle of something big happening. And I've never agreed with that because I always believe in my own writing and in the books that I read that I want to connect with the character and I want to care about them before shit starts happening. Because if shit's just happening immediately, I'm like, well, why do I actually care about this person? And what you did so well with your chapter one was establishing stasis. We see Louise's life. She finds out she's pregnant. She is really happy about it, but she's going to do this alone. She needs to tell her parents in the South who are a bit more conservative and she's worried about their reaction. And she tells them and they surprise her with their reaction and they're really supportive. And this is our first chapter. And a lot of times these days, we're not seeing these kinds of chapters. Can you speak to why you felt that was so important? Yeah. And actually it's funny. Well, two things. One is, so that chapter to me, I really needed the character. I needed people to know that, to be invested in these characters. But to me, it starts out with a huge bit of action, which is this woman who is very career-minded and does not have a partner that she's enamored of is pregnant. And she has to tell her parents, that's huge. In your life, that is going to be a big, big moment. And so to me, we're dropping the readers right in at the top of this huge moment for Louise. And then the next chapter starts with a huge moment. I had this happen. You know, you get the phone call and someone says, pack a suit and come home, pack a suit and come home. There's a funeral. And in that was, and, and actually my my dad was the one I got the call about. He actually survived, but it was it was to the point where we thought everyone thought he was going to die. And I remember just feeling just adrift when that happened. It was just polax, you know, stunned much more than I ever thought I would. And it and so so to me, you start both those chapters with these sort of one two punches to the face. But I know what you mean, and so I felt like I really needed to get people into. Louise's head and care about these stakes for her. Because if they don't, it's not the book for you. And not every book's for every reader. And that is totally cool. But I wanted people to be like, you're either on board with her or you're not. And you're going to see her in two extreme moments and how she navigates them. And if you're on board, let's have a party. And if not, okay. And I feel like one of the things too with books is that it's very, very hard to deliver information. I mean, really, that's all a book is. That's all writing is, is how am I going to organize and deliver this information in what order and in, and in what context? And so you need people to know who someone is. I mean, if I told you a story and I said, my sister left the house and went to a restaurant yesterday, you'd be like, okay, cool. And, and, you know, and the waiter was really rude to her. And if I said, my sister, who actually, she's really agoraphobic because when she was a kid, she got attacked by a dog and has these really bad scars on her face because it bit off her lower lip. She's agoraphobic. She works from home. She's never left the house before. And she really doesn't like social interaction. And she went out to a restaurant yesterday for the first time in years. And a waiter was really rude to her. Like suddenly this story means something. But once things get cooking in a book, delivering backstory, unless you're doing it to make a point is really tough. And so I wanted to 
I wanted to get people, I wanted people to know who Louise was. I did a book called My Best Friend's Exorcism that starts, it's set in 1988. And I realized the thing I needed to do in the first paragraph of that book was say, 1988, Ronald Reagan's in the White House, the war on drugs. This is who's at the box office. Because people, they needed to see it before they could get into it. Yeah. And what you said, they made so much sense because we tend to think of action. When we say get into the action, we tend to think of that as the phone call, pack the bags, come home. That's the action. But like you say, her being pregnant and deciding to do it by herself, that is something huge in her life that we don't interpret as action, but it is something huge. And yeah. so that's got the the wheels turning for me in terms of stasis. It can't just be someone walking through the kitchen, pouring coffee, and this is their normal day. It's something big happening in their life that maybe doesn't fit the whole definition of action. Yeah, the way you described that was really made sense to me. But, you know, just to sidebar for a sec, because I, I, I really like what you're saying, you have to really write what you know. I believe, I, I used to think that was so stupid. Oh my God, write what you know. How do I write about a, a haunted house? I've never lived in one. That's not the point. The point is you've got to cannibalize yourself and figure it out to make people care about it. Some of the hardest things I've had to do in my life is talk to someone. It's a conversation I don't want to have. I have to tell them something they don't want to hear. Doing the thing that I screwed up on, that was fun or easy or just happened by accident. Telling them, that's hard. And one place, and I think a lot of literary fiction tries to navigate that gap, right, between the interior world and the exterior world. I'm making coffee, but I'm also having an affair with my student and whatever it is. And I think where sometimes literary fiction becomes that bad literary fiction that's almost a cliche is when the writer is allergic to drama and they don't sell the reader. They're like, well, these are just everyday things. You know, people have affairs, people get addicted to drugs. And it's like, if you are not selling that on a dramatic level, if you are not raising the volume to 11 or 50 on those emotions, well, then the outside world and the inside world match. And who cares? The, the, the interest is in the tension between the two. 100%. We're almost at the end of our time. I think I've got time for two more questions. Sure. So what I want to talk about is writing the antagonist. Because Louise's brother, Mark, oh my God, Grady, you wrote him so well that I hated this guy. I freaking hated him. <laughs> I want to punch him in the face and I'm not a violent person. So let's talk about writing the antagonist and the purpose of an antagonist in a story as well as their character arc. Right. So I'm going to use an example. I wrote a book called My Best Friend's Exorcism. It's a possession story, right? And the thing that I was having so much trouble with is what does a demon want? Like, you know, how do you figure out what, 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 why on earth would a demon be possessing a 15-year-old kid? And usually in possession stories, I realize that the person being possessed didn't matter. It was a battle of wills between the demon and the priest who was exercising them. And the person was just a battleground. They were backdrop. And they, the purpose of the demon in those cases was to taste, test their faith. And I really struggled with this because I, I wanted to get rid of that omnipotent patriarchal kind of dude yelling at a teenage girl tied to a bed. And the clue for me came when I realized that I was grasping for anything. And I was like looking up word, the word in the dictionary. And it was like demons based on a Greek word for teacher. And I was like, got it. It's not that the demon wants something it's going to teach something. And what would that be? And so that really got me there. And so with How to Sell a Haunted House, 
I don't write men very often, and I wanted to write that kind of loud, brash, southern train wreck dude. There's so much fun to be around on a limited basis. And I wanted to write that sibling who takes up all the space and generates all the drama. And I wanted to do that thing where you think you've got their number, and then, oh, wait, you're not who I thought you were at all. You've got your own life, your own point of view. This all makes sense to you. And so that's what I really wanted to do with Mark. I mean, because at the end of the day, I know people who don't speak to their adult siblings. I've gone through periods of having huge fights with some of my my siblings. But at the end of the day, you are the survivors of a lost civilization called your family. And you're the only people who still speak the language or remember the customs. And it is a lonely world if you're the only one. And so you have to find a way forward. And so for me, Mark needed to be this giant, fun asshole who actually becomes someone that you get why she stays in touch with him at the end. And so that was the struggle. And in this case, the antagonist, the other antagonist who is a haunted, uh, a, a killer puppet was really easy to write because the thing with all these dolls and puppets, I know exactly what they want. They don't want to die. They don't want to be left behind. They don't want to be buried. They don't want to be thrown out in the trash. They have lives. Yeah, and what you said there about the siblings is so true. I mean, they're the remaining eyewitnesses. Yeah, um, exactly. They were there the, at the scene of the crime. 100%. Okay, I have so many more questions, but we've run out of time. Something that I want to ask about is the humor to balance out the tense bits because you write humor so incredibly well. There were bits that I was really laughing out loud, and then there's bits where I'm biting my nails. Why is it important for there to be both? Why is it important that you need the humor to kind of have those moments of levity and then you go into the the dark nail-biting stuff? So I don't like to confuse filmmaking with writing very often, but something that horror film directors get that I think sometimes horror writers don't is a supercharged awareness of the audience and the reader and where they are at all times. And people need to release tension. When I saw Hereditary, there's a moment at the climax where someone does a bit of slapstick, you know, and I burst out laughing in the theater and people around me were so annoyed. And I get it. I was that guy. But if I just had somewhere to release tension before then, I would have been fine with it. But there was nowhere. I was looking for an excuse. And so you've really got to be aware. You've got to turn the volume up and then give people a break and then bring it back up. And the easy way to do that is you just take your concept seriously. Again, with my best friend's exorcism, people are like, oh my God, the exorcist is so funny because he takes snack breaks during the exorcism and you know wants to hydrate and protein load. But I'm like, well, wouldn't you? If you were doing it, I mean, exorcisms could go on for 12, 15, 24 hours. You need breaks. You need snacks. You need to hydrate. Like, And if you take that reality principle too far, it can become ridiculous. So you just want to judge it just right because reality, listen, I don't live in one genre. I live in a world of my life is a horror, slapstick, romantic comedy with moments of serious melodrama. And occasionally, if I'm lucky, a little bit of erotica. Like, you know, our lives are multi-genre. And I think it's a shame when fiction doesn't reflect that. What an amazing place to end. Before we end, Grady, I am going to ask you to give a shout out to your biggest fan. Her name is Carmela. She got so excited when she heard I was interviewing you. And if you could just give her a shout out, it would make her day. Oh, yeah. Carmela, thank you so much. I am so sorry about the haunted puppets and dolls. I hope your emotional scarring is not too deep. Amazing. Thank you so much, Grady. Thanks. Really good to talk to you.
And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Lira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, 
we're having a live cozy 90 minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.